0: You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, a treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O Good One. Let's jump right in here, Father Sebastian, to the gospel text given to us for our thirteenth Sunday after Pentecost. It is the story of the wicked tenants from Matthew chapter 21, continuing, as I keep repeating, our our post-Pentecost theme here in the life of the church, and really now getting into this stage of the challenge of um, our our life within the church, the challenge of our evangelical mission, um, and a reminder of our call to that mission As we see it develop in the epistle that's given to us today. So let's jump right in. Matthew chapter twenty-one, verse thirty-three. Matthew twenty-one, verse thirty-three. You have your Bible. What's that? You have a Bible. Me? No, I've got. uh, Yeah. Okay. Here we go, guys. Get your Bibles out. Matthew chapter twenty-one, verse thirty-three. The Lord told this parable. There was a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard and put a hedge around it and dug a wine vat in it and built a tower. Then he leased it to the vine dressers and went abroad. But when the fruit season drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers to receive his fruits. And the vine dressers seized his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent another party of servants more numerous than the first. And they did the same to these. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the vine dressers, on seeing the son, said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we shall have his inheritance. So they seized him, cast him into the, out of the vineyard, and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vine vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? They said to him, He will utterly destroy those evil men. And will lease vineyard, the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of the in their season. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? By the Lord this has been done and is wonderful in our eyes. You know, Father Sebastian, I I um, as I'm reading through this text, it re- just reminds me of, of something we've said before, and that is, you know, we've heard this story so many times that it just kind of becomes almost second nature to us and we just keep reading um, and uh, I never let it really sink in. So that's our, our hope today here is to let this kind of sink in and challenge us. Why is Jesus using these, these particular images? And you know, he, he switches his, his imagery, by the way, in the middle of the text here or toward the end of it from vine dressing to building the building uh, you know, from, from the fruits of the vineyard to, uh, to this idea of the cornerstone. So we're going to have to take a look at that. But give us a, a, the context here in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been kind of going along with Jesus, the transfiguration, and so forth. Where does this text fit into that, uh, that progression
1: of, of his ministry? So there are two themes that we see come together in this text, <clears throat> which are prominent in this whole section of Matthew. And that is Psalm 118 or 117, depending on how you want to count We'll keep hearing quotes from that psalm as we go along. And then also this theme of fruitlessness, this theme of fruitlessness. So Matthew has been telling us, as you mentioned, about the life of Jesus. The first half of the gospel, he told us about his revelation to his disciples that he is the Messiah, the long way to Christ, that earthly king. And as we talked about uh, previously, the second half of Matthew's Gospel, starting with the Transfiguration and leading up to the Resurrection, is intended to reveal then to Jesus' disciples that this man of Nazareth, this this guy that they were watching, who, who they believe is the Messiah, that they've now agreed he is the Messiah, the Christ, the King, that he's actually not only that, but he is also the Divine King. That they had been waiting for to return to the temple in the post-exilic period the people were waiting for the return of two kings the return of the messiah the earthly king mm-hmm. to the palace of david they were also waiting for the divine king to return to his palace that is the temple and in fact the word t- temple and palace are hekel it's the same word in hebrew so they're waiting for these two kings to return, and, and all the prophets begin to speak about these two kings return the glory cloud, the divine king returned to the temple, and the human king, the Messiah, returning. And so what we find out as we read the New Testament is that Jesus is that long-awaited human king, or that long-awaited earthly Messiah, and he is also the divine king returned to his temple. And so we saw the first half of the gospel reveal that, at Caesarea Philippi, the disciples realize he is the Christ, the Son, of God. In the second half of the gospel now, beginning with that transfiguration, leading up to the resurrection, the revelation that Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, is the divine king is now, is now coming out over and over these little flashpoints until it finally flashes with all light out of the empty tomb.
0: Well, Father, with that broader theme in the gospel of Matthew of their coming to this realization of who jesus really is we are now kind of almost at the end look we're at chapter what 2021 20, of, of matthew we're almost toward the end of the gospel here the transfiguration has already taken place jesus has now made his way back to jerusalem he's gone through jericho i believe by this point in the gospel he's gone through jericho healed the man in jericho and then makes his way to Jerusalem. Very interesting is that as he makes his way to Jerusalem from Jericho, he would have come right over the Mount of Olives, the same mount that the glory cloud ascended to heaven from. Now the glory of the Lord, as John tells us, he is the glory of of, of God, comes over that same place, making his way down into the Kidron Valley and up into the Temple Mount, the glory of the Lord now returning to the temple. but then with all of that glory uh the kind of passionate narrative begins here um not all is well and uh and and so give us right here what's going on in this gospel passage around this text um where jesus is in these final days in which he's going to approach the cross
1: so uh, in chapter 21, at the beginning of the chapter, we hear about, as you mentioned, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, that's chapter 21, verse one, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then entering into the into the temple precinct. And then we hear about this conflict between him and the religious authorities. In fact, it's here when we, uh, we begin to hear in this conflict already, Psalm 118. But then as Jesus is leaving the temple, having found it not in the way it should be but rather his, as he describes it a uh, a den of thieves mm-hmm. a, a quotation from jeremiah he crosses that kidron valley again to go up over the mount of olives to go to bethany right to hang out yeah. for the evening and the next morning it says this is in verse 18 in the morning as he was returning to the city he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So he comes to this little fig tree. Now, there are a lot of little fig trees down in those valleys and things. I remember when we were on, that, on our first pilgrimage in that area, I remember the massive fig trees that were growing in Gehenna, the Valley of Gehenna, just the valley mm-hmm. over and with figs the size of apples. But this little fig tree that Jesus comes upon in this part, which is probably a little more arid, doesn't have any figs. But this is the springtime. There are supposed to be figs. The, in that region, the fig trees give you figs in the spring and, in the, and in, the, uh, in the fall. But there are no figs on it. So for whatever reason, there's no figs on it. But this becomes a prophetic sign. He has come to the, tr- to the temple and he has found it fruitless. He's come to Jerusalem, he's found it fruitless. He finds that, his, that the vineyard here has not borne its fruit. And this fig tree then, without its fruit on it, that he has come to for food, has be, becomes then the symbol of everything that's going on here in this conflict. And then we'll, we'll hear then, as we read from here on, we continue to hear this theme of fruitlessness or of uh, individuals who are, supposed to be in charge of something but are not doing their job over and over we'll hear this kind of theme in the next couple of parables
0: you know i think people reading this probably would would, um would you know oh the poor fig tree (laughs) you know but uh and and why why is it suddenly a fig it seems so random okay he's walking by and he curses the fig tree and so forth but but there's a there's a whole background that we're supposed to be understanding and hearing in this text isn't there that that would the original the early christians would have heard and understood a whole a bigger symbolism coming from the old testament and seeing jesus really fulfilling uh the prophecies of the old testament
1: yeah so the all of these texts the fig tree the the vineyard all of this is assuming a massive knowledge of the old testament and well our audience is reminded of that i would hope our audience might not uh, fall into despair either. Is it, well, how could I ever know the Old Testament well enough? That massive knowledge of the Old Testament, understand the new. It, all we have to do is just turn off Seinfeld or whatever the TV show <laughs> is. People are watching today every evening. An hour a night, three hours a night. Keep track of how much time we waste sitting there staring at that box. And how much time you could just within a month, just in a month, put into reading the Old Testament, so that we could uh, understand the New. So here's an example. Here, the the fig tree is an example in the prophets of the um, of Israel. Trees, the olive tree, all sorts of fruit, vineyards, things are always uh, in the prophets symbols of God's people, individually or corporately. So that's a pretty easy one to see knowing the prophets but a classic example of this is the parable we're looking at today and that is the vineyard so in uh, we should probably take a look at it just so people understand this this is over in isaiah chapter five isaiah chapter five you can see this is how 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 many parallels there are and yet there are differences so it's not just simply the old testament is being quoted in the new the Oldest is being quoted in the New for a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it is regarding the problem of the temple. So Isaiah chapter 5, it says, Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it, he cleared it of stones, planted it with a choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine, a wine bat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes and now O inhabitants of jerusalem men of judah judge i pray you between me and my vineyard what more was i to do for my vineyard that i have not done to it when i looked it yielded grapes and why for it to yield grapes why did it yield wild grapes and now i tell you what i will do to my vineyard i will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured i will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down verse seven for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So mm-hmm. back then, if you want to buy, if you want to plant a vineyard, you didn't go to Home Depot and buy, you know, a particular vine that you want. You go to the brambles in the, in the ditches and you find wild grapes mm-hmm. and you and you find you pick grapes until you find one that is a fairly sweet vine or whatever particular flavor you want. And then you take whack a couple of branches off of that particular vine that is producing the type of grapes you want, usually sweeter ones rather than sour and then you go and you plant those in your vineyard. and you have a vol- then you have a whole vineyard of those particular types of grapes. But the problem is, well he is this vine, this uh, vintner has gone along, he's found he's gone through all the grape vines in the ditches, and he's found one that is sweet. He's planted a whole vineyard from that branch and it produces sour grapes. And of course, this is all a symbol of a bigger problem. This is not about grapes. This is a problem about God's people being given all of this, like a cultivated land, being being harvested from among the other vines, right, from the nations, being cared for in a special way, and then producing the same thing that the nations produce.
0: You know the 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 fathers of the church are 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 pretty much unanimous in explaining this parable in, in this way that the the vineyard owner represents God our Father, the the wicked vine dressers represent the leaders of God's people in the at least in the Old Testament or or, or leading up to Christ or during the time of Christ, the servants that God sends are the holy prophets like Isaiah who we're, we're reading here. Uh, obviously, the son of the vineyard owner. Obviously, that's Jesus, who they beat and killed. So there's this whole thing now in in the um, uh, in the Gospel that is a prophecy in itself of what's going to happen. Um, and then the new vine dressers that God hires are the leaders of of God's church, uh, which he establishes as we're going to start to see in the epistle that we're reading. So there's so much here that we can kind of mind if we just slow down and start to consider what this text means and why jesus is speaking in this way using this vision of, of of isaiah this prophecy of isaiah as the background then applying it to the life of christ but then further then as we're going to see applying it to the life of the church at the time of saint paul the christians and ultimately to our own life with a big question mark to see how we are living in that vineyard that god has given us but then here in the gospel jesus it seems like loses his concentration, kind of like I do a lot of times when I'm giving a homily, and starts to wander off in another direction. And he says uh, he he switches now from the image of the vine dresser to that of the cornerstone. Why does he Why does he do this this move right in the middle of the gospel? He just changes the image altogether.
1: Okay, so yeah, this this is Psalm one eighteen, uh, or one seventeen in the Septuagint numbering the first time we actually hear from this psalm is back at the beginning of this conflict at the beginning in chapter 21 when jesus comes in jerusalem and they're waving palm branches and they're and they're saying hosanna hosanna Hosanna, save us save us son of david that is psalm 118 and then we're going to keep hearing and we can't cover the whole psalm today but we're going to keep hearing little clips from it as we go through this section of matthew all the way to the crucifixion so The psalm originally is about David entering into Jerusalem after a battle. He's been out at battle. We know the stories of David in the Old Testament. He'd go out, he'd conquer the Philistines or the Ammonites, and and then he comes back to Jerusalem victorious with his army. And the first thing he always does is he enters into Jerusalem, heads straight to the temple, and he walks into the temple and thanks God for, for having saved him and all Israel. And as he enters into the temple, uh He says, "The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the lord's doing. What does he mean what's well, originally about Israel, the nation, which was rejected by all the nations, the Gentile nations around them uh, An insignificant thing, like builders going to build a foundation. They look at this stone,, eh, they look at this one, oh, that's a nice one, and then they start to build their foundation as they continue to build their their building they pick out they look at a stone that one's not right toss it well he says that israel is like one of those stones that a builder when looking at a pile of rocks to build looks and says this is worthless tosses it and goes on building with other stones and he says no israel has become the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders right so this is now the cornerstone and is the lord building the building and so, this tells us how important, of course, Israel becomes in the time of David and during the time of Solomon. They eventually rule all the nations around them.
0: There's these two images then coming together. And, you know, your, your reference here, your, or Jesus' reference to Psalm 118, is so important because um, we get, there's, if you read through the Psalm altogether, you get these beautiful lines that we're so used to. Verse 26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Obviously, this is what the the children are chanting Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Uh, bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. This psalm was used uh, as you're you're mentioning as David's David's psalm, if you will, his 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 uh, psalm of glory as he comes victorious from battle. But it's later on used by all the kings of Israel as an enthronement psalm. Uh, very interesting because here in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem in the context of Passover, and here in the context of Passover, suddenly they, in a sense, they throw off all of of the of the requirements of that feast and begin to celebrate another feast, which is the feast of booze, which which Peter referenced, by the way, in the at the Transfiguration, because they believed that that feast of booze would remain forever. It was that feast. In the rites of that feast, the waving of the branches, the chanting of Psalm 118, which was used as the enthronement rite for the king. When the king came and was to be enthroned in Jerusalem, it was this psalm that was chanted. So it's very fascinating, very interesting that they begin to celebrate this feast, the enthronement feast, the Feast of Booths, here in the Gospel of Matthew. as They see Jesus come in, which confirms what you were saying, that They've come to a realization of who this guy is. And then Jesus just kind of adds fuel to the fire, if you will, by quoting Psalm 118, confirming what they're doing. But then, as I said before, this whole thing kind of comes to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that hey, the, the, the vine dressers that God has placed in his vineyard are just not doing their job. In fact, they're not only not doing their job, they're going to fight against the one who planted the vineyard in the beginning. Um, and he's going to now begin, in some sense, a new work. He's going to replace those leaders who he has put in his vineyard with another group of leaders who are going to then be called to do what the old leaders were supposed to do and that is to be begin to be fruitful, to bring about the fruitfulness of God's vineyard, of his, of his garden. All of this, of course, has this beautiful imagery from the Garden of Eden itself, that now there's going to be a restoration of God's original plan, uh, the establishment of the kingdom of heaven now on earth. And of course, the establishment of that kingdom, the purpose of Christ coming, the establishment of the church. It's not, you know, a lot of times we think of the church as this, this thing which is kind of like made up by men. now the church is established by Jesus Christ. It is the community. It is the vineyard which God had planted in the beginning, which was poorly tended to in the Old Testament and has now been restored by the original planter of that garden, has been restored by appointing in his vineyard proper guys to dress it. And that's that brings us then to... The New Testament, it brings us to the establishment of the church, and it brings us to the early days of the church, the writings of St. Paul, and then and then for us, a big as I said before, a big question mark of how we are doing in this context of tending God's vineyard. Let's take a look then at First Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, taking a look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 16. Verse fourteen, sorry, verse, verse thirteen, verse thirteen. Brethren, watch, stand fast in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let everything you do be done out of love. Now I beg you, brethren, you know that the members of Stephanas's family are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I'm just going to stop right there for a second, Father, because uh, you know we oftentimes we're we're in church and we hear the the epistle read. Um, and all of the things are going on in the church and the you know, the babies are crying and the priest is blessing the people and the people are chanting, singing the hallelujah verses and we come and hear the gospel read, and it's so difficult to, re- number one, just even remember what was said in the epistle, to remember what was said in the gospel and then somehow to apply it to what the priest is saying in his homily. Um, but uh, here is a case where if we prepare properly, we start to see the inner Uh, wisdom of the church in choosing these particular texts here we're talking about the first fruits of the first fruits in the context of what jesus is talking about in the gospel about the condemning of the of the fig tree and and then by extension the vineyard of the lord in the old testament church now coming to the new testament Um, and now we have a new crop if you will uh, coming to to becoming ripe in the vineyard of the Lord, and that's the work of Saint Paul, the work of the apostles, the work of those new men that God has placed within His vineyard to till and keep. So within that context, we're listening now in the epistle to such as these, to such as these, you too become subject, and to every helper and worker, I rejoice at the presence of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because what was lacking on your part, they have supplied, for they have refreshed both my spirit and yours. To such as these, therefore, give recognition. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla, with the church at their house, greet you heartily in the Lord. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, greet you with my own hand. If any man does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love is with all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, first of all, give us the context here, what St. Paul is talking about uh, to the Corinthians, why he's saying what he's saying to this particular community
1: at that time. So the Corinthian church was established by Paul uh, on his second journey. When Paul, on his first journey, traveled through Asia Minor modern day Turkey, then he on the second journey, did the same thing, but he crossed over the Aegean into into Macedonia and Greece and, and then founded that church there in Corinth. Then, on his third journey, he came back through Asia Minor and while he was in Ephesus, he wrote a few letters. One of the letters he wrote in Ephesus was first Corinthians to be sent by boat across the Aegean to the church in Corinth to deal with some problems that had developed there and some other things. One of the issues that, that pervades the entire epistle is the question of leadership. Who is in charge of the church in Corinth in Paul's absence? There have been some who have tried to grab control uh, and have been teaching things that they're not supposed to be teaching and doing things, but Paul here shows us who is supposed to be in charge in that church. And it's the ones that Paul has, has ordained for the purpose.
0: You know, it, as I said before, it's, it's beautiful to apply what the fathers of the church say about uh, the gospel text which is given. You know, who are these different people in the story? Who is the, 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 the one who planted the vineyard? It's God. Who are the, the wicked servants? Who are the, the ones sent by God, the prophets and so forth? it's beautiful and and so helpful and i was going to to say fruitful so fruitful to apply this imagery and this understanding now to this text in first corinthians and by extension to the to the whole church obviously the he's speaking of the first fruits of Achaia, Steph stephanus's family these i i i guess this is these are saint paul's disciples these are the ones who have He's gone, he's preached there, he's cultivated the church there, he's brought it to life, if you will. Um, and he's seen certain members of that community now that were maybe green on the vine are now starting to ripen, and he is harvesting them. If they're the first fruits, that means that they're being harvested, right? He's now harvesting them um, for a purpose, for a purpose. And it says here that they, are, they uh, are supplying for what is lacking in the rest of the community, which St. Paul uses quite a bit in his understanding of the, the church. The church is this organic body which shares in the, uh, the benefits and struggles of one another. And here are the first fruits are supplying for what the rest of the church is not quite supplying for yet, right? It's not dripping with that sweet wine, the juice coming forth from the grapes yet. But one family in particular seems to be bearing fruit, seems to be doing what the vineyard is supposed to do. And and it's interesting here at the end of the epistle, maybe you can comment on this, that in the midst of what seems to be just kind of like almost this rote conclusion you know, say hi, please greet one another. It almost, it's almost like, you know, we read, I know i in the past of, here he goes with his concluding text. Please say hi to everybody over there for me. You know, greet so and so, greet so and so, greet so and so. But then suddenly in the middle of this greeting, he, he gives a final catechesis. If any man does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. And he concludes his text then, My love is with all of you. Why is it that he turns to this, this, uh, this warning and this focus on love right here at the end of the epistle?
1: So, two things. I mean, exactly what you're saying. The, the, the house of Stephanus, this is mentioned earlier in the epistle as the first house, that, that one of the first ones that Paul had baptized. Mm-hmm. So, you're right. I mean, it was early on when Paul first went there. He remembers, he says, I, I don't remember who I baptized. I remember baptizing the house of Stephanus, but I, I can't remember anything else after that. Can you imagine the chaos, right? He was right. he baptized this one family, and then they went and got their friends and some other families, and then the church started to form, just as many of our little eastern churches have formed in little communities and things. One family brings another family and then another mm-hmm. family. And so now the house of Stephanus in uh, is now, like you said, not only that, that first fruit that was picked by paul the vine dresser now they have become the vine dressers in paul's absence but the the um i i think that's really important this this theme that you've noted here at the end in this greeting and i I, i'm guessing what you're pointing at is this theme of love but the love of of each other he says at the end my love be with you all in christ so Paul's love for Christ is expressed, that love that he says every man must love the Lord unless he be accursed. He says, my love be with you all in Christ. And whenever Paul talks about being in Christ, he's talking sacramentally there. We who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are now in Christ. And if we are Christ, then how could we not love each other?
0: Love is, as I've said before, is the giving of our life to the beloved, right? Jesus says, no greater love hath any man than to share his life with his friend. This is apparently what uh, Stephanus's family has done in supplying for those in the community. Uh, they have become themselves. It's interesting. It's almost like there's two stages of this membership in the church becomes uh, apparent here. That first, uh, we have to be, we're cultivated ourselves but eventually we're harvested by the one who cultivated us. And when we're harvested, we're put to work. I, I, I think the image of the, of the grapevine is a beautiful one because eventually we become what we should become. Um, and in the Eucharistic imagery of the church, isn't that beautiful? That we are harvested and we become ourselves uh, having been baptized into Christ. Christ begins to feed the community through us. And in that way, we ourselves become vine dressers, in the sense that we're to go out and cultivate the other members of the church. Um, and uh, you know, I was thinking it—it's it, it, important to remember that number one, it is God who planted uh, a hedgerow, in a sense. To pr- it's God who protects the church. It is the Lord who built this tower uh, to oversee it. It's the Lord who finds those who will care for it. Um, In other words, it's the Lord who's provided everything for the church, Um, all the necessities of life to keep it safe from the attacks of the enemy, everything necessary within the church. But, uh, and it's a big, huge but, (laughs) he relies upon us to tend the garden. He allows us to participate, to care for it. Uh, We who are members of the vineyard and the first fruits of the church, if you will, um, are called now to do something in the church. That's what I'm talking about, these these, these two stages, if you will, the stage of discipleship and the stage of apostleship, to be called and to receive, but eventually we have to begin to give of ourselves. And I think this parable stands as a big reminder, a warning in our life and in the life of the church that each one of us must choose how we are going to keep the vineyard of the Lord. Um, you know, either we're going to be like the wicked vine dressers who, you know, we, we read this, this, this parable, and we, it's so easy for us to say, oh, yeah, those guys are evil, those guys are bad. But then to turn this thing is almost like a mirror. To say, how am I living within the vineyard of the Lord? Will we be vine dressers in the image and likeness of the Gardener of Life? Um, you know, offering everything out of our own charity, as the Lord has given all things to us, uh, even to the point of sacrificing our life. And and so, you know, I I wonder, if Jesus walked into our church today, like into our, not just into our. Like, Church, but into our our physical church, our 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 community there on Sunday, and of course he is standing there, and he looked at all of us. He stood in front of the churches, looked us in the eye, um, and asked us how we were dressing the vineyard, how we each one of us is participating in the cultivation of his church. What would he see? what would he see in, in, in each one of us? There's a common and very sad saying in the church among, the, among uh, church leaders who kind of struggle uh, oftentimes with making the grapes grow, if you will, um, that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And it goes to the financial support of the church too, by the way. That 90% of the support comes from 10% of the congregation. How sad that is. How sad that is that that's the norm. But a warning And an invitation for our churches, for our communities, to not fit that model. Um, That all of us are called to participate in this this vine dressing. All of us are called to be cultivating the the vineyard of the Lord. All of us are called to be be harvested by the Lord and then, having been harvested by the Lord, to then give of ourselves for the life of the vineyard, for the life of the community. So I, I, I just in conclusion, would like to to challenge our our listeners, our participants today, to engage, intentionally engage in growing the vineyard. This is the the work the Lord has given us. Uh, He's allowed us, he's given us so much. And he has now invited us and allowed us to become uh, 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 tillers and keepers of the garden like Adam before the fall you know let's conclude with that beautiful verse in uh in the epistle brethren watch stand fast in the faith act like men be strong and let everything you do let everything you do be done out of love let everything you do be an overflowing of that gift which has been given in your heart to those around you to Christ our god be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages amen Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting Institute of